Welcome to the At Peace Parents Podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Hello, everybody. I have a really special podcast and YouTube episode for you guys, which is with Lauren Stern Noel, a dear friend of mine. And she has been working with autistic children and children with developmental disabilities for over 20 years. And I'm just going to read a little bit of her bio. She's a credentialed developmental therapist through the Illinois Early Intervention Program, a certified infant mental health specialist through Erickson Institute, and a fellows level certificate DIR floor time therapist. Lauren earned a bachelor degree in psychology from the University of Michigan, just like me, except my degree was in Spanish, and a master's degree in child development from Tufts University. So Lauren and I met and became friends in Salamanca, Spain, when we were both learning Spanish and kept in touch ever since. But today we're going to talk about how Lauren was so instrumental in my journey with Cooper and some of her reflections on him moving into burnout. And when I went to visit Lauren to get my first dose of real support and information about different parenting styles that weren't behavioral, which largely came from, you know, not reading books, but her inviting me into her home with Cooper in Chicago for four days and having the opportunity to observe her parenting her own son and seeing a very different way of doing so than I was doing, which at the time was one, two, three magic. (laughs) So without further ado, this is Lauren. And Lauren, you have so much experience with working with neurodivergent kiddos and kiddos with developmental disabilities, but you also have experience as a mom of a neurodivergent kiddo. So I'd love for you to just add on to what I've said in terms of your parenting experience. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it has been a journey. I think a pretty complicated journey as both a professional and a mother. I had many conversations with other professionals in a similar boat, and it feels like no matter how much we know that it's not our fault, we have all the training and this is our passion and this is what we chose to study and work in this field, and we still ended up with a child with differences. And my child is diagnosed as gifted. So he has very advanced cognitive and verbal skills. And the social emotional world for him is just, it's not as easy. And so the level of frustration is is pretty high. And so we also experience in our home, emotional regulation and how to support it. And having two parents that have kind of a different approach and different understanding and how do we navigate that? So I feel you on many different levels. Yeah. And you also have a daughter. I do have a daughter. Yes. (laughs) How old? 
she's five, she's in kindergarten. And we're very lucky in that she's thriving, which is wonderful for her and hard for her brother to see that things, life comes very easy for her and he has to work a bit harder. You know, he loves school, he's got friends, but he has to work harder and it's adds another element of disharmony in the home sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So how old is your son? Can you share with the listener? Yeah, yes, he is eight, almost nine. So he and Cooper are almost the same age. Yeah, and William is five. So we have a very similar split. Okay, so I'd love to start off with when I was first learning about, well, not learning about PDA at all, but just Mm -hmm. experiencing in my home burnout with Cooper around the age of four and a half or late, a little bit later than that. And I was falling apart. So Mm -hmm. for those of you watching, Lauren was like the first person who supported me and made any sense (laughs) and believed me in the sense of like, I was watching Cooper have what I called at the time, like feral meltdowns that were so scary and what felt like such violence because he was throwing things, screaming, you know, if I would get near him, he would sort of attack me that I would have to pick up William, who was an infant at the time, and like run into the street in the DC area where I was living while my husband would stay behind and sort of try and contain him. And it was, it came on fairly quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was what I now understand as masking at preschool. And then he was, you know, more quote defiant at home. He wouldn't do anything independently, but it escalated very quickly to where he largely stopped eating and was having like extreme panic, but it looked like defiance. Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, I was doing the traditional parenting. I was, you know, being told to do parenting classes, which we had like tried to do the different traditional parenting timeouts and consequences and rewards and all the things, making him sit at the table (laughs) until he ate. And I had reached out to my pediatrician because I was scared. And they were like, well, you can, you know, why don't you go take him to get ice cream? And I was like, no, you're not understanding that like, he's like physically fighting me and he looks like a terrified animal for like hours in my home. Like, this is not an ice cream situation. (laughs) And then they're like, well, why don't you admit him to Children's Psychiatric Hospital? So that was also something I considered but my mother-in-law at the time was like, just bring him to my house for a couple days so you can regain clarity. And he went into total shutdown at her house. So this was around the time (laughs) that I was like, what is happening? I don't know what to do with my kid and I'm terrified. And so I Mm -hmm. reached out to Lauren because she was a dear friend of mine and I knew that she had a lot of training and experience and work with children with developmental disabilities and differences. So before we go any further, I'd love to hear like your version or like what you remember from this time. Because I was living in the DC area, you were in Chicago, like Uh from a friend standpoint and then from a professional standpoint. Yeah, I remember it clearly. I think it was Father's Day. Yes. Um, When you called me 
And I was maybe at brunch with my family. And I said to my husband, I said, you know, when we get home, I, I'm going to call Casey. <laughs> I, I remember texting from the restaurant, like, I will call you as soon as I get home. And I was hearing your story. And I heard you say that one of the recommendations was that you take your child to, you know, a psychiatric psychiatric hospital. And that as a friend broke my heart for many reasons. But the the biggest reason was I felt like you weren't being heard and that you weren't being helped. So I felt from a friend perspective, like sort of uh, angry on your behalf that you here you are. You're (laughs) you're welcome, girl. I mean, I remember feeling it. Yeah sitting in on the couch and we're talking and I, you know, probably said a bad word. And I thought like, why is nobody helping this family? And that was my sort of visceral reaction. Yeah. Thanks for getting angry on my part. I appreciate that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So as a professional, Mm -hmm. like putting on your professional cap, because you work so closely with so many families and parents Mm -hmm. in difficult situations, like had you seen this type of situation before something similar? Yes, I do see it. I see it a lot with families who sometimes never quite find their way and their philosophy and their framework. And it's, it's a process. I remember thinking, hearing you now with my professional hat thinking, this is going to be a process. And I wish that I could give her this answer or the solution, but it will be a journey. And we need to figure out what is not feeling good in this kid's body. And we know, as you know now, the work is very complicated. And I remember thinking, we need to get you guys a team of people who can work together and think together and help you create a framework so that your kid can thrive. Yeah. So the first amazing thing that Lauren did was because I was like, you know, nobody's listening to me. I visited these different, I I don't know if I visited the clinics after or before I went to visit you. I think I didn't visit until afterwards, the OT clinics. So I just didn't even know where to start. And Lauren was like, why don't you come to Chicago, stay with me and my family with Cooper for four days from DC and you can meet with a speech language pathologist and an occupational therapist that I deeply trust and know their work and who will hear you and will get a sense of like like what's going on with Cooper. Mm-hmm. And so at this time, like I knew nothing about neurodiversity. I, I didn't know what occupational therapy was. I didn't know what speech language pathologists did. And I was arriving into your home with Cooper, who I was terrified to travel with at the time, because I was like, is he going to run away? Like when I'm trying to get on the plane, is he going to have a huge meltdown? I remember bringing so many, what are they called, band-aids? Because he had all of these like ailments and and like everything hurt, right? Like the legs don't work. I have a scratch that's not actually there, but maybe it is. Like, so I was just like, feels like it is. Do you remember that? I had all the big, like with his little backpack. Um, Yeah. And his dog, was it a dog? His doggy. Yeah. He still has his doggy. Yeah. Precious doggy. Now he has a real one too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm aware. (laughs) Um, 
And I remember arriving in your house and getting the opportunity to, to, before we even went to see the professionals, I got to watch you parent your son. Well, it was like, <laughs> how'd I do? <laughs> you did great. It was oh, like, thanks. I had never seen someone in action co-regulating and naming and and you did set some boundaries i remember when the kids were jumping off the back of the couch and you were like i can see your body really wants to do this but (laughs) you (laughs) Um, might break an arm yeah so they were definitely getting into their sensory seeking together but i had just never seen anyone who wasn't working through the like, if you do this, then you have this consequence, right? Or really operating from like a nervous system and sensory support lens. Mm -hmm. And there's one anecdote I remember that I wanna reflect on with you because I think it's so illustrative of like how much I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) It was when we went to get bagels together for breakfast and I I didn't know if Cooper was gonna Uh eat his bagel and we were getting takeout like we weren't trying to sit down at a table or anything like that and he like couldn't really be in the bagel shop and i think i had to set like a small boundary because he was like kind of running from me and then he Mm -hmm. ran out into the parking lot and hid behind a big dumpster Mm -hmm. and every time i came closer to him he would get further from me and i remember like i was so activated and so like what do i do Mm -hmm. and i went to you and i was like lauren what should i do in this situation (laughs) you're like well you know you can go over to him you can get low maybe like name like i see that your body's having a hard time and you know the initial basics of co-regulation which was foreign to me and then we eventually with a lot of patience your patience because i was also like oh my gosh i'm holding everybody up like my kids hiding behind a dumpster there's germs there like i'm crouching on the ground like (laughs) terrible and then he eventually emerged and we got him in the car and i think he did eat a little bit of the bagel Mm-hmm. I don't remember that super clearly. So yeah, I share that anecdote because I was so early in my learning of like a non-behavioral approach. So mm-hmm. do you remember the bagel incident? And like, what were you <laughs> thinking? <laughs> I do remember. In fact, I remember you came back over to me and standing in front of the car and said, we're having a dysregulated moment. <laughs> And I said, okay. And um, it was like the first time I had used that word too. I was really proud of you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like, you di- yeah. he's dysregulated instead of being like, he's having a temper tantrum. And I think, you know, we gave him some time and some space. And I think he was also kind of trying to do the work on getting himself back together. And I asked you, I said, do you know, like, is something wrong? Or is, you know, and I think you said something about he doesn't want to eat the bagel or something. And I said, can or he wants to hold the bagel. And I said, can he hold the bagel? And you said, I guess. And I said, well, he can hold the bagel. Yes, yes, because I was like, oh, like he he has to wait until he gets in the car to eat it. I think that's what it was. And then right. I was worried about getting your car all messy. 
And it was so simple, but you're, yes, you're like, well, can we just let him do that? Right. And it's mm -hmm. like a perfect example of an autonomy accommodation, mm -hmm. what I now call an autonomy accommodation. But at the time it was just intuitively, you're like, let's be flexible. Like he, yeah. he wants to do this, <laughs> but I had all these narratives of like, well, we can't do that, you know? And I was worried about his hands not being clean, but cost benefit. And it turned out, <laughs> you know, he was going to yeah. dive in the dumpster if we didn't let Right, him. right, right, right. It could have gone, yeah. Could have gone worse. Could have, yeah, could have gone south. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that, you know, I navigate in my own house too of like, well, we want our child to be flexible. This is not really something that is going to be harmful or, you know, I, I hear you on the germs in the dumpster that that's could be potentially harmful, but luckily it wasn't. And we're modeling flexibility. And that is something that we work on in our, yeah. You know. So as a prof so that's the friend reflection. Did you have, oh, okay. have any thoughts? Like, let's say I wasn't your friend and you were like coaching yeah. me as a mom. Mm -hmm. Like, what were you thinking as a professional? If you were thinking as a professional? I am not sure what I was thinking as a professional. But if I think about it now, I think that you were a parent who wanted to figure out what your kid needed. And I felt like you were ready for a different approach. Sometimes, often, I work with parents in that stage of not being ready and not being able to let go of how they feel they should parent. And that's fair. And sometimes I say, you know, our philosophy, our model, you know, in the DIR community, especially, is not going to feel right for everybody. And the difference was, I felt like you were hungry for it, that you were ready for it, and you just didn't know about it. Yeah, I was very hungry. Very yes. <laughs> for bagels and a different way. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So after the bagel incident, uh -huh. <laughs> I think it was the next day where we went to do an assessment for my son yes. um, with two of your most trusted colleagues. Yeah. The owner of a clinic and speech language pathologist and an occupational therapist. So this is my mm -hmm. first time meeting either of those professionals. And we walked into the space and you knew them because they're colleagues. So we trusted that they were gonna bring curiosity and non-judgment. Mm -hmm. And they had this amazing sensory space with like a ball pit and a slide and ramps and hammock swings and like all this cool stuff. And I remember my son, initially Cooper like going through for a long time sort of mm -hmm. this organic obstacle course that or like route that he set mm -hmm. up for himself do like a circuit mm -hmm. yes circuit. I do and then after he went for I don't know 45 minutes on mm -hmm. the circuit I remember it was either Sherry or Lori who brought in um, some gummy bears in a little Dixie cup and some goldfish in a Dixie mm -hmm. cup. And he sat down and he was so regulated. 
mm-hmm. eating them. And I think a big part of it was the sensory, but it was also the autonomy for him to be in the space and do what he wanted. And they were very mm-hmm. good at holding space for that, but also bringing like the positive, like, I see you doing this. So using that declarative language without necessarily like calling it that at the time. Mm-hmm. And then there's this one moment that I remember so well with Lori, where he sort of organically initiated climbing into a hammock swing. Mm-hmm. And she prompted me to get in there with him. And, you know, at the time, I had such a visceral response to being near him because I was afraid mm-hmm. at any moment he would like be set off and be aggressive. Yeah. And but she prompted me gently and I she's like encouraging me to get closer to him and so I was laying side by side and like he put his cheek against mine and she pointed out the connection to me and I had this aha moment of like oh like that's connection for us Mm -hmm. like I didn't even think of it like that and so that was like a glimmer to me in that moment so it was this beautiful opportunity to see him through different eyes. Like, because mm. when I was in your home, you were seeing him through such compassionate eyes and, mm. you know, initiating play with him and encouraging his play with your son, which his play skills were delayed, as we talked about, or in some cases, non-existent. But also Lori and Sherry just seeing him with such joy you know like they were like happy to be there with him and he didn't have any meltdowns so i'm wondering like like what do you remember about that it must have been a two and a half hour session i mean it was quite a while (laughs) Yeah. yeah i didn't know the part about him being in the lycra swing or the hammock with you um you know i couldn't see in there um so when you talked about that it just was so it's powerful and I'm glad you had that with him and I'm glad Lori the OT could hold that for you guys and and sometimes that's the professionals you know just have to do something so minor and it's sort of like an aha moment right like oh connection doesn't have to be verbal he doesn't have to say I love you yeah he can lay with you and show you I, you know, I need this mom. And I, you know, my behavior is pushing you away. But what I'm really seeking is connection, which is so hard to grapple with as a parent. Yeah. So I digress. But thanks for sharing that because I was there and I didn't even see that. Yeah. I mean, I was inside the hammock swing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I was probably talking with Sherry. And um, so I'm glad you, you had that. That's kind of your your moment I think where it started to solidify and it started to feel good yeah I I was a little worried that you were going to want sort of an answer I feel like we walked out of there without an answer because there's really no answer right these aren't professionals that are going to be able to see him every week and kind of grow with him and be a part of your story because you don't live there And so I see it as it was sort of a jumping off point. I was worried that, you know, the friend side of me, that it wouldn't feel like enough for you. And I'm now feeling, oh my gosh, I told this woman to bring her child to me, to Chicago. And, you know, I introduced her to my best people. And what if it doesn't feel right? 
Well, thank you for taking the risk. Yeah. I mean, well, I did learn though about sensory systems and occupational therapy and that was, and connection and non-behavioral approaches. And like, I'm not an expert in DIR floor time and we're going to talk a little bit about this next, but from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, like one of the things that makes the developmental individual differences relationship-based play or floor time approach so powerful is that it kind of transcends diagnostic categories, right? Like you don't have to know exactly the label or the diagnosis to apply that lens, right? Am Mm -hmm. I right about that or? Absolutely, absolutely. And I say that to families all of the time. You know, initially the model was developed based on primarily children with autism. And so, so parents consult the Google as they often do when they're trying to figure out what's happening with their kids. (laughs) And I say, you know, this model is how I, how I personally interact with children, with my own children, you know, with my neurotypical child, this is how I connect with children. You might read research about how it's very good for children with autism, but it has nothing to do with autism. I think that it is a very healthy way to engage with children and help them figure out who they are and figure out the world. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit like practically what that looks like? Like when you work with a child through this lens, let's say, Mm -hmm. say, because I know you've worked with PDA kids, whether or not Mm -hmm. we called them that, right? Exactly. What does it look like in a session, like when you're working directly with a kid where there isn't necessarily a diagnosis and like how to, how does this approach work practically Mm -hmm. for you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there are levels in the floor time model. um, And the first level is regulation. And so I always come into a session trying to remember and hold on to, are we regulated? You know, especially for our children who are very verbal, like children with PDA often are, we can be fooled into thinking they're regulated because they're talking about something. Um, And maybe they're not screaming, crying, throwing, but internally they're dysregulated. They're not in their green pathway, which is, you know, cool, calm, collected, ready to learn, ready to play, you know, social engagement system activated. And so that's sort of my first kind of key point is that dysregulation can look like many different things. And, and I can't move up the developmental ladder, I can't expect engagement and high levels of cognitive processing, if we're really not 100% regulated. So the DIR floor time model is this kind of nice ladder of where children should their their trajectory in terms of social emotional development. And sometimes we're at level six, where we're, you know, symbolic play, and we're engaged, and we have to go all the way back to regulation to the first level. So if we're regulated, it's still a lot about following the child's lead. Um, and many families will say, well, I could follow his lead forever and we won't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hear but you. it's it's a skill. It's, it's definitely, a, um, you know, an art and not a science. But um, following their lead really means you're sort of matching them where they are. Where is their skill set? 
at their highest capacity, but in the moment, right? And I think that is such a struggle with parenting and this kind of pressure to do this approach or your child won't learn, but it's, it's really our expectations have to meet their capacities and their highest capacities are not where they are hundred percent of the time. So if my five-year-old has been tying her shoes for, you know, or putting her shoes on for two years, but one day she's crying and fussing and wants me to do it, you know, I could refuse and say, you know how to do it. Or I can think, well, she's seeking connection because she's tired or maybe she had a bad day or maybe all these things happened that I didn't see. So I can just say to her, I know you know how to put your shoes on, but you're wanting me to do it right now and that's okay. So in therapy, it's a lot of that too. It's kind of meeting kids where they are and kind of prioritizing connection and regulation. Yeah. I, I don't know if that got to your question. Yeah, but. totally. We're going to talk on our next episode about like the nitty gritty of play which okay. I'm excited about but good yeah I'm gonna refrain from asking more nitty gritty session like what okay. questions okay we want to get to the last part of our trip together and what it sort of meant to me and my journey with Cooper so you know it was the end of the trip the kids were in bed all of them <laughs> I think we were having a beer and like talking on the couch in the like semi dark and I was traveling mm-hmm. back home the next day. Oh, I think you had given me some books. And so I was like intellectually curious about like, well, why wouldn't everyone just use this approach? Like this seems better, right? Like I think I was in that vein of things because I had seen how much better Cooper did just in the four days of that co-regulation and not sort of punishing or consequencing. So I asked you like, okay, like what's the difference between DIR floor time and ABA and why is ABA so dominant and only, and often offered as the only option to parents, like as from a therapist or a pediatrician or a doctor, especially if they're like, if they're diagnosed with autism and you explained to me about like the evidence base and i had this like aha moment of like well of course dir floor time doesn't have this huge evidence base that they can draw causality from because if you're meeting each individual child where they are and fluctuating your practice with their nervous system it's hard to have comparable data points in a larger Mm -hmm. sample whereas if you're just measuring the same protocols of like, if you do this, you get rewarded with this. And then we measure like, did you do the thing? You can create enormous data sets, right? Mm-hmm. And the same divide exists in my discipline at the time I was still working as a social scientist, which was political science, right? And there was mm-hmm. a big divide between like, you know, qualitative methods that are perfect for an individual case, which I think as a parent, we're always working with individual cases and not large data samples. Mm -hmm. You know, so we use ethnography, participant observation, interviews, like deep case study. And we get so much more information on that one thing we're trying to figure out. And then Mm -hmm. we situate it within a large data set. And so there's a place for both, but like the, the division in my discipline 
I just drew that analogy to what I was learning about your field. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I don't need to worry about the fact that there's less, quote, evidence-based research if there's this analogy to what I already know about my own discipline and sort of disagree with. Like, I did both qualitative and quantitative work. But when I really wanted to understand the humanness, was absolutely unique to that one case right so i hope i'm not getting too like abstract but that's how my brain processed it um and and it like made sense to me like totally made sense to me logically intellectually and from what i had seen in our four days together and seen how sherry and Lori worked etc so i love to hear before we say goodbye, (laughs) your thoughts and experience with ABA versus a more developmental differences perspective and more play-oriented work. Mm -hmm. You know how strongly I feel about the DIR floor time um, approach. And so I cannot speak objectively, but I can speak to my experience. And I remember if you're doing it after college. Remember? I was. So after we graduated from the University of Michigan, me with my little psychology degree from a very large, very large university, I thought, well, what am I going to do now? So I find myself in Boston working at a a residential school, basically, a residential facility uh, for children with severe autism. You know, and if children, these were these boys that I worked with were teenagers. But if children have to be in residential care, you can imagine how kind of complicated things were to get to this point, right? And so this residential facility was an ABA school. Um, And so here I was, you know, with my fresh out of college with my degree, and I'm doing ABA in this residential facility. And I'm thinking, this does not make sense to me. This just, we are helping get rid of behaviors, but what are we giving? What are we teaching? Uh, We're just sort of trying to get rid of behaviors. And um, it felt very sort of antiquated to me. And it is a behavioral model. It sort of was born from behaviorism. And I completely understood that some children absolutely had to be there because it just wasn't safe for them to be anywhere else. But it, as I was doing it, I thought to myself, I can do a year, I can do a year, I'll finish out the year, and then I've got to find something different. Because just you know, what did I know as a 22 year old, but I just knew that it didn't feel right. Um, And so then I went in the complete opposite direction and started early intervention with babies and supporting families around development. So I clearly have strong opinions. Let's hear them, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you want to know how what I feel the difference is or the approach or well, maybe we why I feel with. more strongly. Okay. So like, let's think about it from like the perspective of a parent. Okay. It's like, this is the only evidence-based thing. Mm-hmm. And my pediatrician told me to do it. And like, yeah. how does that make you feel as a professional? <laughs> yeah. So my usual response, because this comes up a lot is, 
Well, ABA is um, empirically based. There's a lot of research around it. It is very intensive. So families get a, feel like they're getting a lot of support. It's very intensive versus, you know, an hour a week you might spend in occupational therapy or speech therapy. And it is, as you can imagine, what insurance wants to pay for because of the data. Insurance, you know, it's, it's much more in the medical realm and it's not necessarily best practice. There are providers out there I, I know are much more open-minded. They're trained in ABA, but they want to understand development. You know, they want to help kids build skills that are kind of functional and important. But as generally speaking, the model really looks at get, getting rid of behaviors without understanding kind of the why behind them. Um, and that is sort of the crux of my field is why, you know, why was Cooper behind the dumpster, right? And, and the ABA would say, would, you know, set a limit and a consequence. And if you don't get out of the dumpster, or he wasn't inside, well, if you don't get out from behind the dumpster, <laughs> you know, you're going to lose your this or your that. And, and that's fine. If parents need that model, then they can have that model. You know, you, Casey, were really ready to do the emotional work within yourself so that you could get a plan together for Cooper. It is very hard for a lot of parents, and this is completely, you know, without judgment, to get there emotionally. And it is much easier to follow a rubric, to do what someone is telling you to do, and you do see results, uh, but they're not necessarily lifelong results. It's not necessarily results where kids feel good and confident and regulated. It's, it is a very hard to do the work that you've done, Casey. And it is easier to have someone come into your house for 25 hours a week and have systems and protocols and charts and and so I understand that. And, and that is just what some families need. And that's okay. But the families that opt for the relationship-based, the play-based, the developmentally focused model are going to be okay with accepting, you know, their kid climbing into the hammock with them and putting their face on your face and not having to say, I love you. Because in the ABA model, they can teach a child to say, I love you, but they can't teach a child to feel it or to seek the connection or to even sort of uncover the need for connection. So I really could talk about this all day and I promise I won't, but um, yeah. <laughs> that's my, my general yeah so I just want to like name and validate that want and need and desire for the certainty of exactly mm -hmm. what you said like I when I came to you there was a part of me that was like I just want a plan and a fix and I want to know what to do like just tell me what I'll do and I'll go at it like the type a that I am and fucking excuse me, just like implement, you know, but it's not like that. It's like, yeah, you have to, there's a lot of patience and observation and backtracking. And as you said, like it's deep work on the part of the parent because you also have to grapple with like 
what perhaps wasn't so nurturing that you were doing for a, a significant period of time, which was certainly the case with me and Cooper. Like I was a big part of the trauma. I didn't do ABA and he wasn't in a, like a super intensive behavior school. It was me. It was my parenting, right? So I had to like grapple with that. I also want to say like, I agree with you. Like there are some ABA spaces that are really different Mm -hmm. and working within the insurance model, but applying more of the sensory and developmental approaches. Yes. So there's no judgment of parents mm -hmm. who choose this, mm -hmm. but it's an invitation to understand that like the quote evidence base doesn't necessarily mean it's the best fit mm -hmm. for the kid, especially a PDA kid, because if you think of the root cause of what activates the nervous system, it's someone putting themselves above them mm -hmm. or a lack of autonomy, choice, freedom. Mm -hmm. and, and like, can you imagine if we had been behind the dumpster and I was like, if you don't get out from behind the dumpster, which is what I wanted to do, you can't have your bagel. Oh, I mean, he would have run into the street. I would have had to yeah. like, carry him. It would have been. Yeah. yeah. It's complicated. You know, the floor time model is really about holding the family emotionally through the process as well. You know, and I applaud the ABA field for, you know, evolving. I think they really are, it's evolving. Um, but I also want families to know that there is another option and it's hard. It's, it's qualitative, mm -hmm. you know, and I understand that parents want to see results. And they want them like right away. Exactly. And like exactly. everything we're doing in my work with parents as well. And like your work, it's long-term. Mm -hmm. Like it really takes exactly time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What I want is for parents to just have another choice that's covered mm -hmm. by insurance. And if it needs to be more intensive, because so often the barrier is like either the parents don't know about another way or they know, but they don't have insurance coverage. Right. Or you know, their kid can't attend school. And so mm -hmm. the only alternative is an ABA right. 20 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So structurally, mm -hmm. what I'd like to see is just another option covered by insurance, yes. which is more sensory and nervous system and relationship based like floor time. Yeah, let's keep working on that because I'm right there with you. Yeah. We'll keep doing it. <laughs> Sounds good. It was so fun talking to you, my dear. Where can parents find you if they are in the Chicago area and mm -hmm. want your services or training? Like, what are some of the things you do and provide as a practitioner in the Chicago area? Well, I do home visiting. And so I don't have a clinic where you know, kids need to come and do the work. I'll do, we do the work right at home. I do go into a lot of schools as well or daycares um, and support children in the context of their learning environment, their social environment. And that I think is pretty unique. I have been fortunate to build relationships with some pretty amazing schools who want providers to push in and support the child in the context of the group. So I, I love that part of the work. Um, and certainly 
doing home visits with siblings and parents and childcare providers. And sometimes it's, it's more consultative where families, you know, whether it's because they moved away or constraints on schedules, we can certainly have consultative services where I'll do an observation. Um, we will talk periodically and sort of brainstorm and troubleshoot and what's happened throughout the week. I do for professionals, I do a lot of professional development workshops. I do reflective supervision. So sometimes other professionals will work with me for more of kind of the training. Yeah. So I, I can be found on my website. My company is called Playtime uh, Developmental Therapy. And the website is playtimekids.org. My email is lauren at playtimekids. There you go. And <laughs> yeah, and my my numbers on the website and, and all that. And so, you know, and, and families sometimes come to me just for a chat and it, they don't have to sign up for services necessarily, but it's more of a, a guiding. Where do I go and who, where do I start? Yeah. So any of those things can happen. Awesome. Well, thank you. You're such a good resource. I wish we lived in the same town. I know. I but at know. least we're, we're both closer. in the Midwest now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. This was really special. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you for your wisdom. And I'll see you in two weeks, my friend. Perfect. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.